Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're getting a chance to meet up again with Professor Marco Costa, the founder of the Body of Four team and host of Coffee with Costa. We'll be talking about the growth and evolution of the BO4 team, his head coaching experiences with Team Canada, and the growth of Canadian athletes here in Canada. Catch you on the other side. Yeah, no worries. Excellent. You guys. So we are here today with Professor Marco Costa, the founder of the Body of Four team and uh, your podcast or vlog series, uh, Coffee with Costa. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing all right. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. It's been an interesting ride, that's for sure. No kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's been very yeah, interesting. It's it's getting to the point where I think, uh, you know, I've been on several meetings um, regarding all this COVID thing and martial arts academies, and and you can just see the frustrations in people's faces. They're like, well, they're at their limit, you know, they're they're at their limit with all this, and and they just want to get back to uh, running their academies, running their businesses, and. It's a, it's a, you know, I f feel and sense their frustrations and, and, uh, you know, I feel for them because obviously I'm in the same situation, you know, and some are willing to do some things, some are not willing to do those things. And it's, it's just all over the place right now. And with no like solid, real end in sight, it's just getting to people, you know, it's just getting to people. No, it, de it definitely is. We've had a lot of people on uh, recently. We had uh, Crew Brian Edwards on. We had Dan Maroney on. Yeah. And they're, they're all we're all in the same situation where, like, me and Aaron, we run a program as well, and that's, I mean, our hands are tied. There's only so much. I think you're you guys to do. are in an even more difficult situation considering you run it out of a fitness facility. And well, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. That's even like, I think we can get away with opening up with. with under the OJA's uh, jurisdiction as early as next week. Uh, if you do, uh, obviously you follow all the protocols and you follow everything that they require. But I don't think you guys, even if you wanted to, would be able to do that because, you know. No, we can't yeah. just because if fitness facilities are closed and we, we run a program out of a fitness facility, then if, if they also come to us and say, Hey, you know what? We don't want this. We don't want this running right now or our hands are tied. Yep. I hear you. I mean, yeah. there's been uh, up and down stories of when you guys would be able to open. I mean, I think we're all lucky if we're going to open with any kind of contact in August, if that, if we're lucky, if not all the way until September, October. Right. So, yeah, no, the, the latest uh, information that I've kind of gotten through the grapevine of individuals I know, so July 13th looks like Ontario might be opening up big boxes, but then um, especially like Mississauga, Peel, uh, Toronto, uh, Vaughan area, probably not until like um, July 20th type week. So there's 
optimist optimism, I guess I just call it based on the big boxes. But again, what those limitations are going to be like when you get in the actual facilities are going to be interesting too, because a lot of different places have different protocols based on social distancing, what their time allotment is in the club and all that kind of stuff as well. Like places like good life and Mobani, yeah. they're doing like appointment basis. Right. So like you can, go for an hour and a half two hours and then your time limits up you gotta leave right so i don't know what's gonna happen when those big boxes open because nobody's really been given a clear answer well i think the the whole problematic uh situation you guys run into is the equipment right yeah and the whether or not people are allowed to use the the change rooms and all that uh, that that's a lot of where you have your big issues yeah it, it should be interesting, but I obviously, like you were saying, like with a smaller base facility, you'll be able to control it, mm -hmm. control the, the clientele coming in as well. And you can, yep. can mandate who your students are working with, what type of workouts they're going to be doing. So you're going to have a lot more control. And, and I think that's a big positive, especially when you look at it, it's like, okay, you know what, maybe we're at the end of the lights coming closer to the end of the tunnel, which is good. It just requires a little bit more patience, obviously. Yeah. Well, it's for me the difficult part is just to find the all the extra work in, that it entails. Mm -hmm. You know, the cleaning, all the extra cleaning, all the extra hoops. You know, having to even if we run like solo classes, you have to. Of course, they want they want you to have like shorter time classes. And then you have to clean everything after every class. Um, yep. And I like to think I have a medium-sized facility for as far as, a, as far as like a martial arts school goes. And, and it's just, I don't know if, if I can justify all the, the extra work and the extra money that would have to be uh, put into making this happen. And the most difficult situation is, of course, only 10 people allowed in the building at the same time, including the instructors. That, that's, that's just craziness for me uh, because I would have to do everything myself, you know, be to, you know, maybe another person. So that way we'd have eight people in class. It's just ridiculous. I have a, you know, a, a almost 4,000 square foot facility and I'm only going to have 10 people is and then half an hour in between classes to clean everything, which, okay, do I hire someone? No, I can't afford to hire anybody because the funds are not going to be the same. I'm not getting my whole members, all of my members to come back under these protocols. They, they don't want to. The majority don't want to. And I've had conversations and emails and phone calls and the majority are not comfortable or just don't like the format of solo drills. Mm -hmm. That's a big issue. Uh, I think uh, crew Brian, who we had on a, a few days ago, he said the same thing. It's the, the protocols and everything. It's, it's straight across the board. So we can be in a thousand square foot facility and you're allowed 10 people, or you can have a 30,000 square foot facility. And guess what? You're still only allowed 10 people spread out max in the building. Um, in your opinion, cause he was even saying as well, it's like, you have to look at, okay, like, is it, is it worth opening is really the big question because there's going to be extra costs when it comes to cleaning. Um, a lot of your, a lot of the members, and you mentioned it, they're not going to like the format, although, you know, your hands are tied. You, you're, you're only allowed to do so much at this point. Um, from a, 
business standpoint, what would you like to see like the government um, either offer schools in this situation or like what, what things would you like to see changed? I think that's been, there's been a slow, slow progress towards putting things in place that uh, help, but are they ideal? No. Uh, the loan, not ideal. I'm not interested in going into more debt to keep my academy going. Um, and then, you know, the CERB, for some of us who like are incorporated, like myself, I could basically stop paying myself and I could technically collect the CERB. But $2,000 for a house, household of five people is not enough to cover all my bills. Mm-hmm. But again, better than nothing. Now, our landlord has been uh, progressively getting better with the idea of helping us out uh, because, um, you know, we we don't have any money coming in at this point. Uh, We chose to stop collecting memberships. We didn't think it was fair to collect money um, when you're not really providing a service. Even if you do the Zoom, which we did, and we currently are, you know, we 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 are doing it, uh, we may have to pause it for some for some other reasons but uh you know we were trying to to be as a courtesy we were providing zoom but we couldn't justify charging the memberships if people weren't really getting a full service Uh, even though you know there was a lot of them still willing to continue to pay i know that some other uh academies are still collecting their memberships and i'm not knocking them for it if the members are willing to 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 adhere to that then more power to them but uh, it's, it's, it's challenging, uh, but my landlord has chosen to go with the 25%, uh, 50% from the government, 25% from us. It started where she wanted about 75%. We were paying her about 75%. She was just kind of giving us a break. Then we went to just paying TMI, uh, which again was great, but she wanted to defer the rest of the payments, the rest of the money, you know, mm-hmm. from the lease. Uh, you know, we agreed. We weren't too happy about it, but we agreed. Only because for me, it's, it's, I, I get their, what they're trying to do, but at the same time, like everyone is taking a loss. Why aren't you taking a loss too? Like, why do you get to collect full lease money or, or you know, or we have to pay the deferred, the rest of the payments. I didn't think that was fair. Because again, we're we're all in a situation where we're losing money as a business. So as a as a property owner, you're gonna lose money too. Yep. Right? I, I don't agree with the deferral because that means you lose nothing. You're gonna get all that money back. Mm-hmm. Right. So we weren't too happy about that. Then she was like, Okay, I understand you guys are in the situation that you're in. There's no money coming in. So we'll we're gonna go in through the government and try to do that. And she did uh put that process through. I'm not sure where we are with that right now, but she did apply. But uh, I did hear, I'm not sure if it's, it, it was mentioned, I believe by Premier Doug Ford, that they would have some kind of uh, legislation where they, they were going to make sure people don't get evicted anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was mandated so now. I believe, I'm not sure if it was supposed to be like actually legal this week or passed through legislation this week. I haven't heard anything yet, so I'll wait for that. Now, I'm not saying people should be assholes out there and like might be mandating that there's no more evictions, 
Yeah. I'm saying that, you know, I'm not going to be an asshole about it. I'm going to try to continue to work with my landlord and make it a fair agreement where she's still getting something. Uh, or, you know, with, with, if the, the government continues to offer the 50%, we'll continue with that for as long as it's, is, is allowable. And then we'll talk to her, obviously, about like where we go from here. But it's nice to have that kind of safety net, knowing that up until a certain point, she can't kick us out if we can't afford to pay her, right, or whatever. So, again, it's, is it ideal? No, but it's better than nothing. I just feel really bad for those that already lost their businesses because I think um, there's been a few academies that have closed and I don't think there's, there's no turning back. Like they can't go back to the landlord and say, Hey, you, uh, you know, you, you couldn't have uh, kicked me out or whatever. So, I mean, I, ho I hope that this is at least saving some other academies from closing down. Yeah, I, th I, I would really hope so, especially when we have a situation that's unprecedented to nobody's fault of their own too. And it's just something that's happened. And then it's just, you hardworking people like yourself and other academy owners that just had to put everything on hold and they just weren't able to do what they could and get their memberships in there. Cause we were all forced out basically into our homes for the last hundred days. I think we're at now. So I can, I can understand how frustrating people can be. And especially when they have, other businesses and again like you said like there's other businesses that didn't survive they're not there anymore they just can't hold on to the rent and they just weren't this, able to this is, this is just horrible for for many of us you know i was doing very well before this all started uh, very well uh, you know i had an, a booming academy with lots of students and continuously to grow every month and now um, like if this goes further or based on how things turn out, I could be losing my business because I have to make a strategic decision and I refuse to go into debt. Uh, yeah. you know, it may come to the point where it makes more sense for me to close up shop, um, storage everything and just open up when things are back to normal. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that might be a possibility. Now I know you might be looking at it as like, Oh my God, you, you can't believe you have to close your Academy. It's terrible. Yes and no. Yes, it's terrible, but it might be the better decision. It might be the, the one that's more logical, right? Based on whether or not you want to lose money. I can't keep, you know, uh, we did get approved for the loan. That doesn't mean we want to use it. Yeah. You know I mean? That's just, you know, again, I refuse to go into debt because of this. And it might make more sense to just, temporarily close find another location and then open up when things are we can actually run like normal like regular classes and no restrictions and all that yeah i think that no, listen, really... don't get me wrong i know this is not the popular view with uh, other academies and uh, i do not knock them for for trying everything possible to open as soon as they can and if they can get the majority of their student base to agree to the protocols and all that man all power to them they have my support a thousand percent but i think each academy has to look at what they're dealing with and what is the best financial decision for them i think absolutely i think you mentioned it like i don't think like i think you have to look at it individually like what's the best decision for 
your school? Because once again, like your school is going to be different from, you know, another school that's maybe a lot smaller or another school that has a lot more square footage. You, you, ha you have to make the best decision for, I think, everybody involved, including, mm -hmm. you know, yourself. As, as sad as it may be to be go, hey, you know what? We may have to shut down for a bit, but it doesn't mean that's the end. It means that, you know, you just have to, you know, close the book and open up another chapter at another point. Well, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm in that position. Um, that that's a possibility, but I, I know that there are others that if they shut down, that's it. They, they will not open up again. They just, I think may not have the energy, the money, um, you know, the support to open up again. And I feel for them. I think that shows you being strategic, especially in your business planning, but also kind of like you as a person, right? You've been strategic, opening up your academy and also, well, I'll talk about it, like the rapid growth of BO4 before this all happened, right? So I kind of want to like hear more about obviously your story and your jujitsu experience and your, your journey that you've had over how long has your career been as a jiu-jitsu professor almost now almost 20 years going on uh it's been a bit <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'll give you the coles notes if you people even know what coles notes are anymore yeah uh, oh, i know so, so, i grew up with those i cheated in school with those <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i started martial arts when i was 17 with, with taekwondo uh then i progressed to muay thai because i didn't feel taekwondo was quite for me not that again i have no regrets my journey was like almost perfect the way it worked out i'm pretty proud of it um then uh you know ufc uh one uh, november 12 1993 changed i think the whole world the whole martial arts world and um i actually you know I, i'm a i'm a massive martial arts fanatic you know at the time i used to go to the magazine shop and you know, sometimes they used to have up to seven magazines, different magazines, and I would buy them all. And, and I remember seeing an ad for the, for, the, for the first UFC. I think I still have it somewhere. And I'm like, oh, what's this? Is this for real? Or is this, like, is, is this serious? It was an ad, you know, real fights, challenge of the styles. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. So I made it a point to, to, of the date and the time, and it was going to be pay-per-view. And I remember, like, I still remember vividly, I went to an Italian bar um, with my friend. It was just me, my one of my, you know, uh, colleagues from Taekwondo. And, uh, and we were doing Taekwondo and Muay Thai at the same time because I wanted to, like, get my black belt. I just didn't want to give up on the Taekwondo thing. And I remember it was just me and him sitting at a table, nobody else in there except a, a couple of, like, old Italian men having their, you know, drinks at the bar. It was like practically empty, the place. And, you know, they, they were showing the fights. So, because back then, I think every bar would show pay-per-view events. So we were watching is like, we just couldn't believe it. Like, I, it was mind-blowing. And obviously, you get so into it. I was very young, like early 20s, I think, when that came out. So we were like, the next day, we were in the Taekwondo trying to figure out, you know, arm locks and takedowns and doing all this other stuff. And I remember... Like, if, obviously, there was no BJJ back then. So I went with judo. It was the closest thing I could find. And it was free at the local community center. Um, and that's, I started doing that. I did judo for a bit. And that's where I met, again, I'm trying to condense everything. I met, that's where I met Monkey. 
uh, Professor okay. Mary. Oh, I was wow. at the judo club. And we, you know, we, we became friends quite, you know, right away. We, he had a bunch of tapes of stuff and I had a bunch of tapes of stuff. So we started to exchange, exchange our VHS tapes. <laughs> were those v, were those beta i don't know whatever they were <laughs> so we started to exchange events and stuff like that and he's like oh i don't know how we got the, the, the connection but and even before that i competed at grappling tournaments i did judo tournaments uh, but i was not like under any official bjj umbrella i was just on my own trying to figure things out um but then in uh, around 97 towards the end of 97 i believe was when uh monkey and i were like he's like oh there's a karate guy up the street who's bringing a brazilian gentleman from brazil let's go check it out he's doing some class or seminar there and i had done like other seminars i went to the hoist bracy seminars and and when they came up i went to you know all of the, the seminars from the beginning from 93 to 97 whatever was happening in grappling as you should do in Ontario, I was there, you know, Hansel's seminars, Gina Bell and all these other people. I was like, went to pretty much 90% of those. And I was doing Jocelyn's tournaments and the CGA tournaments they used to have back then. I was doing those and I was doing fairly well for myself, but just, again, just a lot of guesswork and the judo was kind of helping me out a little bit with that as well. So we went, that's when we met Professor Shaw. Uh, that's when we're like, okay, this is where he became an official affiliate of Master Bering, and that was it. The Franco Bering team started, and then the whole crazy history for the next, you know, almost 10 years. Uh, you guys know most of the guys from there. And yeah. They, what they accomplished. It was an amazing 10 years of my life, man. It's so much fun and crazy times, man. <laughs> crazy times. Keep in mind, I've said this many times in other interviews or my own personal podcast, The Coffee with Costa, where I went over, you know, it was different back then. We, we had an MMA-focused uh, ideal, and then self-defense was secondary. We learned all the self-defense. It was part of our curriculum. And again, it was just we wanted to be able to fight in the cage, handle ourselves in the street. And the Gianogi sport was something we did on the side for fun because there weren't that many tournaments a year. Mm -hmm. like maybe mm -hmm. two three tournaments a year so it wasn't a massive focus for us mma was more the focus for us of course once the ibjf moved to to the, to the u.s the, the worlds boom that exploded in the early 2000s and then of course everybody's focus shifted more towards the sport bjj and um and the mma kind of got left behind and self-defense is almost non-existent in some in most academies Mm -hmm. So, and I got my black belt in um, 2005. I believe that was, they made it like eight years, I guess. Eight years since starting. I think that's a average considering also, I mean, I think between eight to 10 years, right? I think that's the average. Um, considering the amount of time I put in, it, it was fair because there was, there was a three-year span where I was in the academy every day for four hours a day from mm -hmm. seven o'clock to 11 o'clock at night every day for three years straight. Right. And then I had some issues with, um, with my neck. Um, I, I had to have surgery and that complicated my life and that plus many other reasons I stopped the MMA career. I didn't want to do it anymore. And then I just went into this being professor Shaw's assistant 
and helping him train guys. So I became the number two guy, cornering most of the guys and helping with that. I opened my first academy, I believe, in 96, uh, sorry, 2006, and that was a massive bomb. <laughs> and I think we're, because, you know, we had the delusion, you know, in the sense that, and I've spoken about this before, where, oh, how hard can it be? You open up, you, you know, you collect memberships, you pay the lease, and you teach classes. It's all good. Yeah. Well, not quite. I wasn't smart enough or to understand the business side of things, and it didn't go as well as I planned, and then... I got into a car accident. My wife got pregnant with our second child and I had to make a decision. So the academy had to go. So it only lasted about a year. Then um, I was very fortunate. Professor Shaw was very kind to me and he allowed me to teach classes for him. A lot of like, so I started teaching at my old Taekwondo instructor's place and at Shaw's place. And I was going in between two places while still having a, a full-time job. I had a career in, um, in uh, large format printing. That's what I did for many, many years. And then uh, and around 35 years old, I took a year off, uh, went, on, went on EI, I talked to my boss and I was like, man, I need a break. So they let me go on EI for a year and then I never went back. That's when I decided that I wanted to teach full time. So that was exactly 10 years ago. Um, you know, the whole, history the franco bearing thing i'm not going to go into that but um, a lot of things happened and i was i became independent about uh four years ago now and uh i was very very fortunate because in that time when i was like teaching at both places uh and i started teaching at at shores the taekwondo place i got a really really nice first group like my first generation i was very fortunate I had, you know, you guys know Aviado, who's been mm -hmm. with me since White Belt. I had Melchias Kidane. I had Roberto Ito. I had Sarah, uh, who was like terrorizing women for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. And and I had a few other guys I can't that I can't remember off the top of my head right now. And they were like just doing very very well. You're gonna leave out the legend on this podcast, Aaron Gall. Yeah, <laughs> I was kind of in and out. He was in and out. He was in and out. Right. He actually didn't come in to train with us on a more regular basis only when I moved to the Dufferin location. Yeah, when it, when it got oh. to the Dufferin location, that's when I was like officially made the switch over. And what year was that? That was um... – Don't ask me, man. I've been hitting yeah, the, <laughs> the head a lot. My yeah, I, I don't remember. But, it's, yeah, that's Age, when time. I made the – not official switch. Okay. Aaron likes to gym hop a lot. He he just goes all over the <laughs> oh, which, 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 no. which, which leads to one of my uh, questions <laughs> that I wanted to ask you: Is Aaron Gall a creonch? <laughs> no. Thank you. No, he's not. Uh, we've had because he did it the right way. He came to me. We had a conversation. He explained his situation, and uh, I agreed and gave him my full support. It just didn't make sense for him to travel all the way to where I was from where he was living and his work. And uh, it only made sense for him to, to go to where he is now. He's happy. He's happy there. And I'm happy for him. No, and I, and I thank you very much for that. And again, that was a hard conversation for me. I'll be completely honest with you. Like, there you go, Aaron. You're off the hook. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, bud. Like, because at, at that point, it's literally, I was coming in, I'd maybe like 
once a month to yeah. maybe train. Like I was, I was still paying my dues and all that stuff, but it was just like, I was just like, I'm not doing anything. And then there'd be points where I'm like, I'm not, it doesn't make any sense. It's also right? frustrating I, because you were coming in and the guys that were there all the time, they were, they were, you know, catching up and giving you a yeah. time and, and you're like, damn, this sucks. So you need a steady, comfortable place that you can get out there and just build relationships with people and build relationships with instructors and teammates. Cause it's a big part of your progress. It's not just technique. It's not just technique acquisition. You know, it's so much more to that, right? You're invested years and years and years with people, you know, on, on there. So I think it's important to, to build those friendships, to build that bond and to, to, to stick it out. And that's really when you start to really see improvement, regular attendance and the relationships you have at the place you train is the most important things aspect. And uh, you just couldn't do that training with us. Not that you didn't want to, it's just inconvenient. The logistics, it just didn't work. Logistics. You you have a career, you know, Aaron's, Aaron's all grown up now. Look at him. Yeah. Yeah. I blame, I blame my wife. Just to kind (laughs) of, keep going here so we don't we don't get sidetracked yeah yeah. (laughs) Um, go on those guys those guys really like helped me out in the sense that they were being super successful they were winning they were winning often they were opening and you know what happens when you have success right people start to pay attention right and that's how I organically, the, the, the body of our team grew organically. It was because of the success of my students. And now people are, you know, paying attention. Oh, what's Marco doing over here that these guys are doing so well, right? And then, okay, one guy's not happy with his, what the, the association he's with. He comes knock on my door. I have a fairly, a very fair affiliation uh, process. And okay, you want to be on board? Come on board, no problem. Um, and then next person, next person, next person. And the team kind of grew more based on the success of the team at the tournaments. Uh, that's basically the main push behind the growth of the BO4 team. It was success at tournaments by my athletes, by my competitors. Um, and then just went from there. And then I was very, very lucky. I mean, I've had people that joined the team and were very like-minded and, you know, we've been together for many, many years and these are really, really awesome dudes. And I've had people that come and go because they just don't click. They don't like click with me. They don't click with some of the other guys on the team and they, they go on. And a lot of these guys, you know, the funny thing is they're still friends. I don't have, I don't burn bridges. You know, I try not to burn bridges. And if you come to me and, and it makes sense, that it's better for you and better for me that you go, then go, man. I, you may be, I'd rather some, I don't want someone that's not happy and causing problems and, and giving me headaches on the team. Right. I don't want that. If you, if you feel like you can have a better uh, life or a better situation somewhere else, please go, you know? And yeah, it stings sometimes because a lot of you, you, some of these people can be people you invested a lot of time in and effort. And it stinks, but I always like if you come to me and you and you explain your your situation, no problem. Now, if you leave and next you know a month from now find out you're training somewhere else and there was no conversation, that's disappointing. That's when you get like, really, why the hell would you do that? You know, and that's where now I have an issue with you, and we may not be you know um, on the best of terms. But man, that's very rarely, very rarely. 
most of the guys that come on the team and left the team were still in talking terms. Yeah, I think that's important. Like you said originally, it's all about building relationships, communication, like you said, right? And if that's happening, then there's never very rarely that you have those types of issues. Well, another thing is, guys, you, how often do you see me at tournaments? Every, mostly everyone. I can spot that vest from a mile away. <laughs> I don't wear it as much. I'm, as I'm, in a I'm long like, oh, time. there's Marco over there at that uh, as well, like screaming at somebody. But yeah, yeah like, no, I haven't worn. You know, that's funny because you brought that up because I haven't worn that in like literally like eight years, man. I remember <laughs> you that. Du- you gotta dust that thing off, man. Like that's. Uh, I haven't worn that in a long time. Um, I'm there from from when it starts till when it ends, and yeah. I don't even till the last Bo4 competitor competes. So. I'm invested in the community. I love this sport so much. I love this art so much. And I just, for me, the, the, besides the value and what it's brought to me personally as a martial art, I love the fact that it brings me in contact with so many people. And I'm, I'm actually a natural introvert. I like being just me for most of the time. But jujitsu makes me an extrovert. You know, and I, I love going to tournaments. I like talking to people. I like talking to the other academy owners. I like talking to the other academy team leaders. Uh, you know, for me, competition is only inside the barricades. I want my guys to win. But outside the barricades, we're all in the same boat. We, lo- we, we, we run the same lives in some way, shape, or form. And we're literally just wasting time and energy, you know, if there's any kind of animosity or any kind of vi- wrong vibe. It doesn't do anything good for the sport. It's not good for the sport. We, we Sport is not mainstream. Until the sport is mainstream, we need to kind of be a, a community, right? Mm-hmm. We need to – the community leaders need to be more uh, unified in their mindset and what they want to do with the sport as a whole and push it more and more and more into mainstream. Once it hits mainstream, everybody's going to be happy because the academies are going to be full and everybody's going to be doing well. So for me, competition is only inside the barricades. And I, I try not to build animosity between – because, man, I, I don't need to go to tournaments and have some guy across the, 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 the ways giving me the stink eye, you know what I'm saying? Because then I'm going to have to have a conversation with this person. And I don't like having those conversations, you know what I mean? Because, you know, the, the person that I don't like to be comes out, you know? And then I'm, like, going to have to, like, hey – What's your problem and so on and so on. And I don't need that. I don't want that in my life. At my, at this stage of my career, you know, at 45, turning 46 years old, I don't need that. I don't need my life. I have a family. Um, you know, I have, I don't need the hassle. I don't need the stress. I'd rather have, you know, friendly conversations, smile, hugs, fist bumps, you know, how's your academy doing? Oh, I'm doing good. How's yours? Blah, blah, blah. Hey, that kid of yours, he's pretty talented, blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? I'd rather have those conversations than having someone look at me like they want to have a fight. Yeah. Um, So I try to build build relationships with all the guys in the community. I I, I like to consider them friends, colleagues, and that's the way I like to keep it. And that's what I try to build for. Absolutely. You mentioned a lot of good things as well. Like you're at a tournament, like you're competing with people, but the way I also see it as well, and I think you agree is, you know, if you're, if that competitor school, if they're doing well, and then that competitor school is doing well, chances are you're probably going to be doing well 
as well, just based on, you know, if the community is growing, everybody wins at, at the end of the day. Um, what I wanted to ask you as well is, uh, we, we touched on it a, a little bit, but talking about like, you know, in, in your day when you were training and coming up, um, there was a lot more focus on MMA. Now there's a lot more focus on, you know, sport and, and then also the, the art itself in general, like a lot of the schools don't teach a lot of self-defense. I know you're, you're a big proponent of teaching self-defense. My, my instructor, Dan Maroney, as you know, as well is a big uh, proponent of that as well. We've discussed this. Um, what are, what are some of the things that you see today that you would like to change kind of like in the sport and versus the art and kind of bringing everything together? Uh, I really don't like the divide. I think it bothers me. Uh, no, it definitely bothers me that there's a divide. Jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu. And there's definitely an, an evolution of the sport. But I think there's room for both in your academy, if you're an academy owner. There's room for both. Um, and, I, and I really, really hate this old school, new school. I, I don't like any of it. I, I think jiu-jitsu for me is all-encompassing. You know, it has all of it. It's just a tree with many branches. And you, you, here's the thing. It has its roots. And, you know, so self-defense and sport fundamentals, that's the roots. I think everybody should learn that, right? Everybody should learn self-defense. Everybody should know the basics and fundamentals and, and concepts of basic jiu-jitsu, basic sport jiu-jitsu. But after that, you can hang out in whatever branch you want. You know what I'm saying? There's branches of the tree, gi, no gi, MMA, sport, right? Uh, uh, different rule sets, right? Okay, now you can specialize. Now you can just sit on that tree branch that you like, or you can change branches whenever you like. The challenge is this. I agree. So for me, I'm not willing to get rid of self-defense. I just, what I, what I do is, okay, I introduce it in the white belts with my white belt curriculum. My white belt curriculum is the roots. It has the self-defense and it has the fundamentals of basic sport. But once you go into the intermediate curriculum, it's just sport. And then I have competition class, which is modern sport. In the intermediate class, it's just regular sport. People are just there to roll for fun. They're not necessarily wanting to go towards competition. They're just everyday guys who are now blues, purples, and they want to, you know, just roll for fun and just enjoy this, the, the sport. Then I have the competition class. Very hard. Yeah, it's got a bit of an elitist kind of vibe, you know, so – you have to be a regular competitor to be in that class. You know, you can't just be, you know, showing up once in a while and participate in that class. Uh, it's strictly for regular competitors to compete all the time. Now, I also understand that if you are one of these individuals, if you are one of these uh, uh, competitive athletes, I agree that you cannot be wasting, not wasting your time, but your time is precious. So you have to focus on just on the sport right and yes you may have to put the self-defense on hold 
but what I can rec- but I what I also recommend is okay once your competitive career starts to go down right and you don't want to compete that much anymore okay then go back to re you know to fine tuning and relearning the self defense so as you get into your 40s 50s 60s you should be learning your self defense if you want to open your own academy you should learn the self defense you know what i'm saying so again so you teach the white belts coming in the roots right and i think that's the best way to do it and i think in your academy the way academies are going now if you want to have a successful academy both financially and and on in the sport you can see it happening with a lot of the big brands like uh not that i'm saying their 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 structure is perfect i don't think it's perfect but it's in the right direction you know you have the Gracie Baja you have Alliance you have all these big teams if you see how they're structuring their classes now and what they're doing it makes sense right they have exactly what i'm doing they have a novice program then they have their intermediate and they have their competition class you have to be a regular competitor to be in that competition class why because your average average black belt is going to get mauled by your competitive purple belt you know what i'm saying and then all of a sudden you get into these battles all oh, the black belt maybe he doesn't deserve the black belt and get out of here with that nonsense it's like it's mm-hmm. levels of commitment to the sport you can't have someone a black belt that okay he's had its time and maybe he's just training for fun trains three times a week and you have this well kid that's there four hours a day every day you know what i mean di- different levels they're putting in different amounts yeah. of time like you can't you can't, you can't compare that no right? you can't exactly exactly so uh, i got there's a lot of these these things these thought processes that are out there that i i really like guys come on but that being said what happened was we created a monster that now is hard to get rid of that mentality what i mean by that is brazilian jiu jitsu black belts we created this ideal that oh they're unbeatable they they should be able to tap everybody on the mat they you know you, they, they they're you know they're they're monsters these these and we created these the, this ideal early on when jiu-jitsu was introduced in north america why because of the mma and the fighters and how tough they were and this and that right and so we we created the monster that now like every black belt is supposed to be up there with that ideal and that's that's so unrealistic man you know we all have different levels of commitment to the art which reflect on how you will perform right like myself for example i i'm 45 i have neck issues i have shoulder problems i still roll but you can't expect me to like keep up with someone like uh let's see like a like a michael sheehan or or a kieran kachuk like i'm talking about the guys that are like on the yeah. scene right come on give me a break no way right so it's it's on a little bit unfair and unjust uh to be making those comparisons and i don't understand what is the fixation because i wasn't born here you know i came to canada when i was turning 14 i don't understand the fixation of you need to tear someone down in order to raise you up like you see that a lot in mma as well and even in in sport jiu jitsu 
oh, you got to tear down the, 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 the champions or the guys that have been there in order to make a name for yourself, right? So that's why, like, I hate when in these MMA fights, they put this young, up-and-coming, hungry lion against the old vet who was a former champion, but he's, you know, had a, who was a star, but now he's got it like this whole, okay, I'll give you an example. Anderson Silva and Adesanya. Yeah. Why? Why is that being done? Yeah. Does Anderson have a chance? Yeah. He's, he's a phenomenal champion. And, but it was clear, like if Adesanya really wanted to push a little bit harder, go a little bit, you can see there was a lot of respect being shown in the fight. Right, it's just I hate seeing those, or, or even like the DJ Penn and Ryan Hall, or yeah, DJ yeah, Penn yeah. Yair Rodriguez. Yeah, I think right. I think from an MMA standpoint, they do that to like, okay, well, look at BJ like Penn, passing, and look at all the like, stuff he accomplished, and then oh, yeah, Ryan but, Hall beat him, but like this, this yeah, is the next guy, and they're trying. It's to, like to passing up. It's like the passing of the torch mentality, but I hate it. I think it's stupid. I, I don't. I don't like that it's like you need to trample down diminish the accomplishments of others in order to make a name for yourself i just uh you know the way i am and, and the way i i think and the way i register things i don't think it's it's fair you know what i'm saying and of course as a fighter you always believe you can win you know and these older guys they're stubborn man they all believe you can win yeah but uh, you know this clear sometimes like Father time is cruel, man. And you're slower, you know, you're not as fast, you're not as strong. And these young kids are hungry, man. They want it more than you do at this point, right? So I think they should have, I think ideally you'd see a lot more competitive fights if they like had like a, like, for example, look at the brilliance of the IBJJF in creating the Masters, mm -hmm. right? Like you can still be competitive within that realm of your age and your weight class and so on and so on. I'd rather see like these old legends face each other. Right. So once you get past a certain point, you have to recognize, okay, there's no sense in this guy fighting the, 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 the guy who's 10 and 0 up and coming. Right. There's no sense in that. Right. That okay. You're, you're onto the old man's league. Right, and then you, uh, <laughs> have you know, a master's MMA division. Yeah, man. Yeah, it can be done, and the fights would be way more entertaining, and way more competitive. You know, I, I, I that's, think that's just my vibe. No, I I think it was a uh, Vitor Belfort was talking about that having like a legends league, basically, where it's having guys who are older who are not really competing for championships at that point, but still want to compete. I yeah. still want to have fights, and yeah, but they don't want to get they don't want to get mangled by you know a younger guy. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like they they wanted to have that type of like a, a like a legends league where they're fighting guys more in their age groups. Let me bring another example up that example where I'm like, this is just idiocy, like absolute idiocy. When they're talking about John uh, Bones Jones facing Mike Tyson. Oh, that's stupid! It's so this dumb. Is, come on, man, this is. Why? The speed factor alone, the size, the height. Yeah, I know Mike looks good for 50-something and hitting pads. But, you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't 
I don't know. I don't like it, man. I people just, people like fantasy matches and I think like realistic. Yeah. Matches. If you no, can put I, I Mike don't. Tyson from 1990 into uh, a into the DeLorean and bring him into 2020 and nostalgia, fight John Jones, there's nothing wrong with nostalgia. Yeah, within reason. Yeah, within yeah. reason. Reason. Right? <laughs> Mike Tyson 2020. Different story. This is, you know, this is insanity. No, like he, look, he looks great hitting pads. But no, like, I know, but listen, like, good for him. He looks it great. It makes more sense for him to do the the, you know, the the rematch with um, Vander Holyfield. Yeah, with Holyfield. Yeah. Okay, that's they're about the same age. Okay, and yeah. they're in shape. Even the other guy that was coming out talking nonsense that was actually on his podcast. Okay, throw him. Is it? Oh, what's his name? I forget. But the older, the older generations, man, have the old like have them go at it. It'll be competitive. It'll be fun. It'll be good for them. They'll make some money. There's some charity involved as well, so it's all good. Yeah, hundred percent. The thing is, is money, man, money and greed, and so because everybody's gonna want to see the spectacle, right? So they will yeah. pay the pay per view to watch Jones Bones Jones against Iron Mike Tyson. I don't see that happening. I think it'd be foolish, honestly, to see that kind of thing. Like I, like I, you said, I'd rather see Hoyfield and Tyson. I'd watch that fight for sure. Absolutely. Like, huh. That'd be amazing. You could see the rematch that everybody fight, wants to see. Fight Island in like Abu Dhabi. <laughs> <laughs> Throw it down there. Well, and the other thing is any, anytime these guys are under contract with the UFC, the UFC has to give the thumbs up, right? So – Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 100%. So, actually, speaking about Abu Dhabi, you actually had the opportunity this year to go to Abu Dhabi. Last year. Head- oh, it's last year. Last sorry, year. I it. Last year. I don't right? think that's happening this year. Right? I don't remember, man. I've been a time Fight long. Island Jiu-Jitsu is coming. <laughs> coming but soon. You're, you yeah. were the Team Canada head coach for the yeah. for that tournament. Um, tell me, what was the experience like for something like that? That's an amazing honor. How did they, I know the team did really well, but I'd love to hear about it. So that was actually the third year that I was the Canada's national coach for the JJF. Uh, it's basically identical roles to the IBJJF. They have three modalities. They have uh, like the dual system, which is like, think of it like demonstration self-defense and then they get scored on. Uh, kind of like gymnastics or figure skating, you know, they get scored, right? Um and then they have a, the fighting system, which is – it looks like MMA, but the rules are a little bit complicated. Uh, so if you were to break it down into three parts, they look like they're doing karate at first, but as soon as they grab, it turns into a judo match, and if it goes to the ground, it's a jiu-jitsu match. So they want you to showcase all three arts, karate, judo, and, and uh, jiu-jitsu. And, of course, they have newaza, which is basically just Brazilian jiu-jitsu in a way. It's the exact same rules. And about three years ago, uh, I want to thank uh, the OJA and Tony Isaacs and the CGA, the Canadian Jiu-Jitsu Association, for the amazing opportunity they gave me. Um, I believe because I'm the most neutral guy and I, I've had lots of success coaching. It's one of my fortes. I think both of you have, have you know, witnessed me doing my thing. Um, because of that, they felt that I was the better candidate for the job because there would be less 
complaining by others about, oh, this guy, I hate that guy. I don't like, I get along with everybody. So I think that was part of the decision-making as well. So the first was the first time was in Colombia uh, three years ago. Team did really well down. The team did well every year. Uh, but if I had to say who stands out, it's the women's team. The women's team are killers, man. They're, they they did really well in Colombia. The second year was in Sweden. Um, so three years ago now, two years ago now, was Sweden. Sweden was awesome too. But definitely Abu Dhabi was was amazing for different reasons. Um, obviously, all three years the team came back with medals everywhere. Like we are one of the top teams. But to be fair and to be honest, the Brazilian the Brazil is not part of the JJF yet, and neither was the U.S. Mm-hmm. So our biggest competition was the stronger teams from Europe, like Russia, you know, and even some of the, of the, uh, the uh, Nordic countries like, you know, Sweden and, and so on, Belgium, you know, those are the guys that we had a harder time with. But I really love the format because it's more about – Whose kid is that? That's Mike's. That might be mine. Where are you? So, um, I love the format because it's more about countries. It's got nothing to do with the patch on your back that is the standard of the IBTJF. This is actual, uh, like, the Olympics in a way. Mm -hmm. You have to qualify in your country, like we had qualifiers here in Canada. And you have to qualify for your national team, and then your national team goes to the world championship. So it was incredible because you're representing Canada, and that to me was a great, you know. And yes, becoming a Canadian citizen not too long ago, and being able to represent this amazing country that's given me so many opportunities that was awesome for me. Uh, the fact that the athletes were from different teams and different academies was really, really cool because, you know, it, that was challenging also because you're trying to bring them together as a team. Uh, but um, I love that whole country idea of like a true world championship, not knocking IBJJF. I've said this before. IBJJF is a team's championship. It matters which patch you have on your back. It doesn't matter which country you represent. Right? <laughs> Where the JJF is about countries. It doesn't matter which academy or team you represent. It's about the country. You represent Canada. And that was a great honor for me. And that was special to me for me. It meant a lot. Uh, every time, you know, I'm up there in my suit and I see that Canadian flag going up and there's an athlete up there getting a medal, it, it was an incredible feeling. It's amazing. Abu Dhabi was awesome. Just because they are so passionate about jiu-jitsu over there, it's literally they're gonna they're gonna probably officially make it their their like national sport over there. They're crazy about it. That whole arena they were in was built for jiu-jitsu competitions, just for jiu-jitsu competitions. It's a great arena, uh, great format. Um, they we were treated very well. The competition was tough, um, and they, they have a lot of talent coming out of that country. Pretty soon, I think they're going to start making some waves. I don't know when, but at some point or another, they'll start to make waves at the IBJJF. 
Because when you have that much funding and that many athletes and they're training and they got support, just maybe not right now you can't see it, but let's take a look at it from like 10 years from now. You know? Oh, yeah. They I had – let me explain. And, and I'm not trying to knock anybody, so I please I apologize if I offend some of the Canadian team members. But when you have an 18-year-old kid purple belt, right, 18-year-old kid purple belt from Abu Dhabi uh, win and beat black belts, you know, one of our own as well from the Canadian team. Like you can see, you know, 18-year-old purple belt. Like where is he going to be four years from now, five years from now, right? He's beating beating seasoned black belts, right? So, yeah, they're really developing over there. But, you know, this is the thing about that's frustrating about anything involving sports in Canada in comparison to the world. And that that's the, the there's no support, no funding, no sponsorships. And it's, it's, it's challenging, you know, for, for guys to really, you know, uh, uh, compete. And then, man, wait till, okay. I know the U.S. is now part of the JJIF. They were supposed to host the next Pan Ams. Uh, so again, we're gonna we're gonna start getting that talent in there. That's gonna make it even more difficult for Canadians to get on the podium. And then once Brazil gets their act together, then it's gonna be even more difficult for Canadians to get on the podium. So we've been extremely successful these last three years. We're very competitive. I think we can compete with with Brazil and US too, but it won't be the majority of the team. It will be those who are capable of cross training and. I know some of the Canadian team members, for example, travel to train at, at camps in the U.S., right, and, and train with some of the best in the world. And that's how they can keep up and be up there, you know. And, but if, you're, if you think just by if – like, if, for example, uh, Ryan, who's like – you know, you guys know he's a pretty talented young man. He, he has gone to the Worlds a couple of times, and he always – you know, the best he's done is quarterfinals, right? Uh, because of that, because that he only trains three or four times a week with me. He's got a full-time job now, you know? So how do you like compete with guys that are training eight hours a day from the, like the autos team or mm-hmm. uh, Gracie Baha team or the Alliance team, right? It's hard to compete with those guys. I don't know if you guys remember two years ago, we had the qualifiers here. And uh, this young kid who's now a black belt, Roberto Gimenez, uh, was here. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he faced Ryan in the semi semifinals, I think. It was the semifinals. And he was running through everybody, but he underestimated Ryan a little bit. So the first few minutes, it was very competitive. But then you can see the change in Gimenez's, like you saw it, it's like he clicked. It's like, wow, I got to take this kid serious. And then you see him turn on that extra, like turn on the the, the Yeah, 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 the extra split. steam or whatever. You, yeah, switch, yeah. you know what? The extra gear, yeah. Yeah, he turned up the extra gear. And again, that's what guys like Ryan don't have. Why? Because they don't train like this other kid does so when he turned on that gear boom, 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 of course eventually took Ryan's back and, and won the match and so on right but for the first few minutes it was competitive because Ryan is talented so could you imagine if Ryan was a full-time practitioner 
Right? So this is the thing. I'm, I'm only speaking from what I see and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. dealing with Ryan. He would do very well if he could train full time. Even a guy like uh, Luke Roberts. Right? Yep. You guys know Luke, right? Yep. Same yeah. thing. If that guy was to train eight hours a day, he'd, he'd be a beast. He would be very competitive at the highest level. Absolutely, especially with his wrestling background as well. Yeah, and his mentality, his mindset, yeah. right? Which is a big part. It's the same thing with Ryan. Ryan doesn't look at him. He, he, he never. You never see him like hyper or freaking out or tense, right? They have just this, that perfect attitude while competing. They don't get rattled, you know. So when you talk about that that next level, that next switch. For especially, I'll just talk, speak for Canadian athletes. What do you think it is that we need? Is it is it funding so people can live that type of lifestyle, or is it just? It's it's complicated. Because I'll tell you why. Yeah, it's complicated because it hurts a lot of people's feelings, including my own. And it's hard. It's hard to hear it. It's hard to understand it. A lot of uh, instructors' fears is losing students, right? Losing students to to, and it happens. It's happened before. It's happening now with the current academy where everybody wants to go train there because of what they have to offer. And that's a higher level of training partners, right? And anyone with any young athlete with aspirations to win is going to want to go and train there. So what happens more and more and more is this disparity where you have these superpowers and then everybody else. And there's pros and cons. You know, obviously, the, 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 the pros is that we're going to have a lot of good up-and-coming young talent, Canadian talent, that will go and do well internationally. The bad thing is now you have these, these you know, um, uh, these teams or one or two teams that um, take up all the talent. And it makes it difficult, difficult for all the other academies to compete you know, and to, to stay with the game. And then, of course, you go to tournaments and that's going to get more and more complicated, right, with, with the number one team just running away with everything and everybody being happy with whatever's the scraps that's left. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish it was that the talent would be a little bit more dispersed. And, you know, but that comes down to the instructors as well and academy owners. You need to readjust and be and restructure your academy to provide better training for guys your your the way you teach classes the way you run classes need to adapt you need to evolve and you got to keep up with the sport and that's hard i'm speaking from experience that's not easy you know that's not easy i agree 100 percent. i think that's you you mentioned something very important yeah you need structure and you need to provide them with what they need. If they don't get what they need in yours, they're going to go find it somewhere else. And that sucks. It hurts. Especially when you've invested something like you invested a bunch of time, you get a certain person to get the blue belt. They're probably the number one blue belt in the division right now. But, you know, they they go somewhere and then they, they, they like have – I have – here's the problem with superpower teams. I have maybe eight killers on the mat. They have 20 or 30. How can I compete with that? So it's very yeah. enticing to go over think, to those teams. I think the big thing is 
I think you mentioned it already, but creating an environment to, you know, create, create that growth. So, so sometimes it's not necessarily who you're training with, but how you're training. And this is what I think me and Aaron try to tell a lot of our guys as well. It's what's the structure? Like how, what are we doing? Okay. Yeah. We don't have, you know, a thousand members to train with, but how do you maximize what we have? I think that's really what I think what it comes down to. That's, and that's what I try to do. I try to provide the best type of competition training that I can provide. And I mean, it's the results speaks for themselves. I just don't have the numbers or, yeah. you know, there's certain attractions that come with certain athletes that might be in these academies that you want to go and train with. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's tough because I may not have those uh, resources, you know, that mm-hmm. some of these other academies have. Um, and that's challenging. You know, it sucks. But I also think that, for example, like, I don't believe in closed doors either. Like, I think that you should allow exposure of your athletes to other athletes. So if you were saying, how do we get these Canadian kids on a team to, to, um, to, to perform better? Well, ideally, I know it's not going to happen because it comes down to funding, right? I know it's not going to happen. But ideally, you need a training center, like the Canadian National Training Center. And then when the team qualifies, right, when we have the qualifiers and we know which teams are at, okay, you're in the National Training Center for, you know, four or five months before the Worlds. Mm-hmm. And you train every day, right? And everything is like you have your strength and conditioning, you have your, your you know, your, your dietitians or whatever they're called, the nutritionists and so on and so on and so on. And you bring a secondary team in just for training. They're not part of the team, but they're there. They're there as partners. It sounds very similar to what they do with judo in Quebec. They have like the the Olympic training center there, and then they get all the best best guys in the country to go there. And they're they're that's the thing with judo. They have no problems training, even though they they come from different clubs. They compete against each other all the time locally, but they also don't have a problem training together. And I think that happens. I mean, I think I, I like to think I have one of the most popular open mats in the city. I get a, everybody comes down to that, to my open mat from every academy. And I don't have any, for me, it's the only time that there's no, there's no line in the sand, right? Everybody's welcome. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's a community open mat. It's open to anyone. As long as you come in with the right attitude and you, you, you know, you come in with good vibes, everybody's welcome. And it's usually like packed in there. Like, if I, it's sometimes you know there's not enough room so many people in there and yes a lot of good guys come by too and that helps my guys and it helps them and that's why i encourage my competitive guys to always come to the open mat because you're going to get those visitors that you want to test yourself with a little bit right um and i know i have there's other academies that do good open have good open mats as well or they have open training that allow other people to come in and train uh, but again, it's it's dangerous because again, it becomes enticing for some individuals. Like, to, oh, it's greener, grass is greener is on on that side, so mm-hmm. I'm going to leave. And that that I think that just it sucks for some instructors who spend a lot of time and energy, right, with athletes. Uh, I feel yeah. I think it's just about again. It's about opening the borders, like rather not being so closed off and just allowing different athletes to train. But again, like you said, 
a lot of people can be closed off because they're worried about losing potential students to a different environment because they're like, oh, this is a good training. I don't get that with my instructor. But it also is a good eye-opener for instructors. Like, okay, what do I need to do to open up my game a little bit better? How do I improve? Yeah. If, if you can't, you know, if you, you, you got to adapt. You can't point mm-hmm. fingers and blame people because that doesn't really do anything for you. Like, you can no. get, I can get mad at all I want at, you know, at the situation that I'm not happy with because of what's going on across the ways. But, you know, yeah. the only way I can combat that is to change the way I do things. Right. So, and, and it's just, it is what it is. Um, I mean, some, some academies can afford to close the board, the, the borders and the, why, because they may have everything they need. Mm-hmm. And if I had a, a team that had 40 killers on the mat every night on my competition class, they don't need to go anywhere else. Yeah. You know I mean, with my instruction and my, you know, structure and the way I do things, I've proven to be successful with what I do. Right. So if I had 40 killers on the mat, I wouldn't, they wouldn't need to go anywhere else, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. but when you have smaller academies, which I did, listen, I only moved like last year to this new, to this bigger facility. Right. Mm-hmm. Before that, I was in the top floor uh, in less than, 1200 square feet that was the size of my mat so there's only so many people i could have so i've always had like a group of you know 10 15 really good guys right at the most and then when i moved to the new location it's all like basically a a rebuilding in a way because i had so many white belts and you have to focus a lot on that you know and um i'm not gonna lie i had a few kind of like situations that affected me and my competition team i lost due to circumstances not because of anything that happened between us so due to circumstances i lost three or four of my best players you know shane went to ireland ashton went into the military you know Uh, who else luke moved to niagara um uh, Trey, my most potential blue belt, due to to scheduling conflicts, had to go train at Gringos. So, fair is fair. He's now part of Cicero Costa. But he again, he was one of my better blue belt up and comers. So it affected my my competition team a little bit. So with the move and then losing some big players, I was kind of in a little bit of a rebuilding stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still had some really good talented guys that you can see ryan uh, i don't know if you guys know Badral. yeah uh, he's uh, the smaller 135er he's he's awesome he's my little he's mongolian and he's a beast um and again i had i have some guys i have juan who was a blue belt who was doing very well and plus the rest of the members of the team i mean i'm just talking yeah. about yorkdale athletes yeah yeah but, you still uh, have all the other affiliates as well. And Milton has some killers. Egor has some killers. O'Neill has uh, some really decent guys too. Like the rest of the team has some talent as well that provide that push and provide that support. And that's why the BO4 team has been always in the top three, you know, uh, because it's a full team effort. Uh, but as, as I was referring more as like me and my team and my academy as a, as a singular idea, there was a lot of factors that came into play that kind of 
you know, affected my competition environment a little bit. Mm -hmm. So especially like through all the athletes you've seen and plus also your own personal experiences, what are some like really good, like memorable, whether it's training experiences that you've had or like even like student battles that you've had on the mats that are just kind of like stick out where they're just a really good story or it's a good, good vibe type thing. Especially ones that involve Aaron. No, there's not many. <laughs> Aaron just dominated everybody in his day. Well, listen, guys, how do you how do you pinpoint twenty five years? Yeah, I know it's hard. Twenty five years of jujitsu, unofficially, and then from so from ninety seven till now, uh, it's hard to remember everything. But obviously, stages, right? There's been stages. I, I really, really have fond memories of training with the boys back in the day with the Franco Bering team. You know, uh, Antonio, Brockman, Monkey, uh, Frankie, you know, Pearson. Man, so many talented guys, Jesse and all these other guys. Mamouch was there, Seiji, like, you know, a real, it was really a lot of fun. And a bunch of other guys that came and went. Uh, so the, I, I really have fun memories of the MMA training, you know, the, some good times <laughs> <laughs> in the dungeon, <laughs> the dungeon, man, the dungeon was fun. We had a lot of crazy things happen. Like there was so many crazy things happened there that, you know, allegedly, allegedly <laughs> nothing happened. <laughs> allegedly things happened there. Um, then, um, when I progressed to teaching, just again, that, that first initial stage where I was so fortunate to have a group that came in that was talented and I really enjoyed at the time I was still able to roll and train with them mm -hmm. hard. And I think that was, I think part of the reason why they were doing so well, because I was still able to be in there with them. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a combination of me being still very active and the talent that they had. Right. And then they went on to have success. And then, okay, that catapulted for the team growing and, and more experiences as a, as a coach. And now as a leader and dealing with other academy owners and, you know, and other leaders. So those experiences have been incredible. Uh, again, just not stuff on the mat anymore, but more the conversations that you're having with the people and how to basically lead a team and again it wasn't by design for me i'm not sure if i'm even the right person to be in that role but it, it, i'm also not one to shy away from a challenge either so i i try to do my best with that and uh and then the challenges of being the national coach was was another you know like kind of you can see chapters and each chapter has these incredible experiences. Um, so for, uh, from my own personal victories in competition, which I, I like to think I did fairly well for myself is considering the times and what you were available to do and how many tournaments we had clearly not as many opportunities as we have today, clearly, but I did the most of what I what was, you know, available to me and I was successful. And then the success of being able to, to coach and being involved in cornering MMA fighters 
and man, they win, you win. You know what I mean? When they win, it's, it, it's the most amazing feeling for me. I literally live vicariously through my students because I can't win championships myself anymore for obvious reasons. So when they win, I win. You know, and I've had moments where you're, I've coached athletes to easy, easy victories. It's like, wow, that was too easy. And I've coached like athletes from the brink of losing to winning. Mm-hmm. And those sometimes can be emotionally like, oh my God, I can't believe, right? So from super fights to tournaments to special events, um, the quintet event where the team, where we had the team versus team, that was a special night, you know, so many emotions and to see my guys perform as well as they did was, that was awesome, man. Like, so if, for me now where I am at the stage of my career is, you know, I really love seeing white belts, like the white, with Steve, when the, white, the, the light bulb goes off and they get it, mm-hmm. you know, I love coaching white belts. I know some black belts, they're like, they don't want to do that or they find it difficult. I, I love coaching. It doesn't matter if it's like the super athlete or the brand new guy. I just love teaching. So it's too many to say, man, like I've been blessed I've been very blessed. And uh, right. I hope that it's, you know, there's a lot more. Once this all craziness goes away, yeah, I'm hoping there'll be a lot more experiences to be had. No, I, I think especially as what you're saying, like the talent that you have as, as an instructor yourself, like once this is all over, and again, you're going to be back on track stronger than ever. And I think you're, again, a whole new perspective of different things that you can start adding into your own program, coaching your students and all that kind of stuff. And I want to thank you very much for coming on this show because I've had the great pleasure of training under you for a number of years. You're a great person. You're a great friend who I consider a very good friend, even though we don't train together as much anymore. We still keep a connection, which I'm very happy that we do. And again, like I wish you and your academy nothing but the best, especially in the future and your growth. Thank so. you very much, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate your friendship, definitely. And uh, I wish you all the best, both of you guys. I hope you're in, this, you know, in the same kind of uh, boat as far as like we that you're able to recover and and get your academy up and running again. Um, I think you have a, a phenomenal opportunity, honestly, just from the bottom of my heart, to if you can grow within such a, a reputable gym, you know, uh, under as an environment where you have not only just a mat space, but that they can get all the, 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 the help that they need on the, on the strength and conditioning and nutrition, you, you could, you could potentially have a really good thing going. I understand that there's some challenges that comes with growing such a, such a, a, a group and academy within a, another business but um, I've been to, to that facility a few times and um, man if, to, if you can have a, a BJJ academy inside of that my goodness it's amazing yeah. it's only All just right. the beginning just uh, the beginning that's it I wish you the best uh, now here's here's some controversy for you guys uh oh yeah uh oh which team is it gonna be <laughs> we've we've had this discussion or Hobson Mora. What did we say? 
Hobson Gracie. Hobson. Hobson Gracie. It's uh, it's one of the. It's it's like you know, second cousin twice removed. You know, it's just, you, you may. That's a decision I, you're gonna have to eventually deal with, man. Yeah. You know Hobson Gracie. You know how it is, man. You know how it is. Oh, man. I know. Yeah, we we haven't crossed that bridge yet, and then I think it's gave us time to figure that all that out. <laughs> oh, listen, man. Be honest, and I'm sure your professors will understand whatever decisions you make. Just be honest. Yeah, right? I, I agree with that. If you're honest and you don't burn that bridge, you can still have the support and still have the friendship. So, Absolutely. Approach it's... it in a smart way. Thank you for taking the opportunity to come on. I think we touched on a lot of big things. Um, do you have any, any, any closing remarks, any sponsors to thank, anybody to – to shout out real quick. Well, that's, that's another thing. I, man, I'm getting really bad. I think they're probably going to let me go because I suck at it. But I never imagined that I would be sponsored by any brand. And Maeda Canada has been so nice to me, so incredibly nice to me, and I'm so grateful to them. Jeff Santos and at Fighters Market Canada. Uh, they're amazing people to deal with, and I highly recommend uh, Academy owners to, to if you want to have a professional uh, person to deal with when it comes to uh, to geese and, and and equipment and gear for BJJ gear, please reach out to Jeff Santos and and uh, they're really good people. Of course, uh, I hope you guys check me out on Coffee with Costa. I'm normally live now on Facebook, uh, and then I upload it to my YouTube channel afterwards. I also do an Insta live uh, on Mondays. Uh, just. Q&A bringing people in so you guys are more than welcome to chime in on there if you want that's Mondays at noon on my Instagram um, and that's about it I'm trying to keep busy with and going back just to finish off what you guys were saying earlier like yes professors out there guys just like take this time I hope you took this time to reevaluate and to invest in yourselves and and invest in your academies and and hope I hope you find ways to come back you know, better and stronger after this. Thanks you so much, guys. This this was awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank it was you. awesome to have you on. Thank you so much, Professor. Have a great day. We're gonna have to have you Bye. on again at some point again in the future. I'd absolutely. love to. I would love to. Anytime, guys. Anytime. Awesome. Absolutely. I'd love to do it in the in the academy eventually. We'll get everybody together in the academy. That'd be cool. Awesome. Have a great one. Thank you guys. Oos. Bye everybody. Joking Hazard Podcast 2020 sponsored by Oh, 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 oh.